Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Forge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. I'm always delighted when I hear back from you as a listener, helping me to understand how the podcast is impacting you and sometimes giving me suggestions or ideas about future podcast possibilities. Recently, I received an email from one of you and I asked for permission to share this, and so did I did receive that permission. I did a podcast not long ago on uh, ministering to sick people. I featured Dr. J.T. Reed, who's a professor here at Gateway Seminary, who has a long history of ministry as a pastor and other ministry leadership roles to sick people, and then himself dealing with his own illness over the past year. I thought he could offer a unique perspective on what it means to minister to people uh, during sickness. Well, the podcast touched one particular listener, and he wrote this back to me. He said, Dr. Reed was my pastor for several years while he was a senior pastor at First Southern Baptist, Lompoc, California. I forget the exact year, maybe 1991-92, I incurred a brain seizure during the middle of a Saturday night. I was transported by ambulance to the hospital and ER. My wife contacted her parents, who I'm sure made several notification calls, including a phone call to Dr. Reed. During my stay in the ER that night, early in the morning, I was not aware of many, if any, of the events that occurred around me. Dr. Reed came to visit me in the ER. Please understand, Dr. Reed, a pastor and Sunday school teacher, having Sunday morning responsibilities occurring in the next several hours, came to the ER to see me in the middle of the night when I first received the notice. Later, he came to see me on his way to church and then came to see me after worship services on his way home. My pastor came to see me three times, even with his Sunday morning responsibilities so soon upon him. And then the writer pins this question. What pastor does this? Well, I answered, a pastor like J.T. Reed, who's been a model of ministry effectiveness for years and is currently inspiring us here at Gateway Seminary with both his ministry to the sick and also his example of living with his own illness. So thank you for writing me back about the impact of this particular podcast in the life of this particular listener But thank you also for reminding me that this is a very real issue. How we care for people when they're hurting says so much about us as ministry leaders and really is a remarkable opportunity to make an impact in the lives of others. Here, now what, almost 30 years later, this person is emailing me about the care that he received from a pastor during the time of his illness. Well, that podcast, Ministering to Sick People, is still available. If you've not heard it, go back and listen to it. It's a good, encouraging reminder, along with some practical instruction about what it means to minister to people while they're ailing. Well, let's shift gears now and talk about what I'd like to cover this week on the podcast. And the last few days here in the United States have been rocked by the leak of a Supreme Court brief that may, and I emphasize may, preview a coming decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Of course, the Supreme Court decision, which about 50 years ago uh, established uh, abortion as a legal option here in the United States. Well, that leaked brief has sparked protests at Catholic churches, uh, vandalism of Catholic church facilities, including some really unfortunate things that were written on the properties in uh, Boulder, Colorado area, uh, in paint across the outside of the facilities, and then threats to disrupt worship services and other church events. And 
These actions that are being taken by pro-choice activists are clearly designed to intimidate these Catholic Supreme Court justices and convince the Catholic Church to moderate its position, its clearly articulated position on abortion. Well, the first result may very well happen. These justices may see the outcry in the, in the culture, may feel the pressure that's mounting to not overturn Roe v. Wade, and may change their minds ultimately before the final decision is reached. That may happen. It's not likely the second option of what I just mentioned is going to happen. I really don't see the Catholic Church changing its position very much. Now, Southern Baptists, uh, along with many other evangelicals, have long stood with the Catholic Church as it advocates for pro-life positions and policies. Now, it shouldn't be problematic for us to stand with the Catholic Church on key issues like this. I remember many years ago when I first became a pastor, uh, during the interview process, uh, someone asked me, what's your view of ecumenical cooperation among churches? And I remember saying over 40 years ago that while it was impossible to cooperate ecumenically on matters that related to our doctrine or our practice as churches, frankly, we often share common values uh, with other religious groups or other religions even, and finding a way to cooperate with them can uh, increase our impact in the culture as we try to stand up for what we believe is right. And that's still my answer today. Uh, I am not by any stretch Catholic, and I am not by any means uh, going to be able to adopt or affirm a number of aspects of Catholic doctrine. Uh, I'm a Baptist by conviction, and so uh, the differences are quite stark between my position on so many issues and those the Catholic Church would hold to theologically. But there's a lot of common ground that we have, especially in terms of the moral and ethical dimensions of what it means to live in commitment to God and, and expressing that through commitment to Jesus Christ. We have a lot of common ground with Catholics, and it's important for Catholics, evangelicals, and other people who share our values to stand together during difficult times like we're going through right now. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what it means to stand firm in the face of opposition, particularly opposition in the culture, when we're facing really significant challenges like we're facing right now in relationship to the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. And you might think, well, this is really not our problem. It's really the Catholic Church's problem, or it's really somebody else's problem. Well, my friends, it is our problem, because the kind of attack that's being put forward right now uh, by activists that stand for what's commonly called a pro-choice position, those kinds of attacks are soon going to spill over, not just into Catholic churches, but into evangelical churches as well. So let's talk today about the kinds of opposition that we're going to face, some sources of that opposition, and then some steps we can take to better prepare ourselves for what may be a very difficult summer. Supreme Court decisions are usually released in June, near the end of what's called the court term or the year of their cycling of their uh, considerations and deliberations. And so sometime, perhaps in the next month or so, uh, the final decision will be reached and we're going to face the difficulties that may arise out of that decision. Well, let's first of all talk about the kinds of opposition that we face in our culture and what that means. The first thing I want to understand is that the, the opposition we face 
in our culture really has satanic and demonic origins. You can look, for example, in Ephesians chapter 6 or 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in the Bible, and you can find in these chapters clear instruction about the satanic and demonic origin of so much that is evil in our world today. When you think about the kinds of evil that we face in our world, it's really difficult to accept that it doesn't have some kind of spiritual, in fact, some kind of supernatural force behind it. And so the Bible describes this supernatural force as being satanic or demonic opposition that is constantly going on, as the Bible describes it, in the heavenly places and emerges, or I would say breaks through into our reality on a regular basis as that satanic and demonic opposition is expressed through the kinds of evil that we face in our culture. Now, when that opposition breaks through, it typically breaks through in one of three ways. First, it breaks through in what I call cultural forces. Now, cultural forces would include things like uh, media, social media, blogs, uh, other ways the culture has of influencing of, uh, uh, for its position and of, of uh, critiquing those who stand against whatever the position is that's being put forward. Uh, most of us know how vitriolic media, social media, and things like that are today. And that's one source of opposition that we're facing right now in relationship to the issues at hand. Another source of opposition are what I call political systems. Now, these are more organized than just cultural forces like media or social media. Political systems are actually organized efforts uh, to undermine certain values or positions. And it is astounding to me how sophisticated these have become in our generation. For example, it, it would have been unthinkable for me when I first started out in pastoral ministry that same-sex marriage would ever be legalized in America, and yet it has been legalized. Uh, it has been legalized by an effort that came, first of all, from cultural forces trying to sway public opinion and bring about a change of mind or mindset in our culture. But ultimately then, it resulted in political activity or political systems allying with these cultural forces to bring about the change. I will never forget living in uh, San Francisco or near San Francisco when Gavin Newsom, the then mayor of San Francisco, uh, legalized or authorized the first same-sex marriages. I was shocked when it happened, thought it was something that would uh, be confronted strongly in the country and be put in the category of just San Francisco crazy, but I was wrong about that. It wasn't very long. It wasn't very long before the political systems aligned with the cultural forces and the opposition we faced was overwhelming in the sense that it ultimately changed the definition of marriage in our culture. We faced the political system alignment in uh, the moving of the seminary a number of years ago. Certainly there were cultural forces aligned against us, media, blogs, uh, petitions, meetings, these kinds of things that went on in the community. But the culture then moved into the political realm, and uh, politicians were co-opted to oppose us, and political systems like uh, the Planning Commission were marshaled to, to oppose us. And the, uh, even 
the the uh, governor of California got involved at one point, appointing a commissioner into into our region that came in with an agenda that was very much counter to what we wanted to accomplish. And so, I'm just simply saying that cultural forces are aligned against us, but there's a second level of opposition in what I call political systems that also can be quite difficult. And then there's a third source of opposition in the Christian community today, and that's other people in the Christian community. You know, there's a lot of division right now among church members and church leaders, and there's a lot of division today among different denominations and different churches and different groups. And so sometimes you find yourself having to speak out against someone else who also claims to be a Christian, uh, and you find the opposition pushing back in that regard. I was thinking about uh, recently a conversation I had with a Methodist seminary president, and he said that as he talks to older Methodists, that they often ask him, what happened to our denomination? What, what happened to our church? Uh, United Methodist Church is on the verge of affirming all kinds of changes in their uh, church doctrine related to sexuality and gender. In fact, the only thing that's been holding them back has been the global, more conservative Methodist church in Africa and other places. And I, as we talked, this, this Methodist seminary president said, one of the hardest things today is the opposition that we're facing to these biblical standards from our own community, from other Christians, other church leaders, from people who name the name of Christ and yet seem to come against so strongly the values and the positions that we hold. So uh, as we think about where does opposition come from that we have to deal with on a regular and consistent basis, if you can imagine it like a giant umbrella, and that umbrella is satanic and demonic opposition that is constantly pulsating, if you will, through the universe, and then it emerges or it, or it breaks through and shows itself in three kinds of opposition that we see under that giant umbrella, the first being cultural forces, the second being political systems, and the third being even Christian community and community leaders that become an opposition to us. Now, that's sort of the kind of opposition we're facing. But now what's the nature of it or the level of it that we're going to be experiencing perhaps even more intensely this summer? Well, there are actually three levels of opposition that Christians face and feel in our world today. And I want to talk about all three of these, and I particularly want to hone in on the differences between them and help us to be a little bit more realistic and a little more clear, clear in our understanding of what we're going to deal with on a regular basis. The first level of opposition that we face as Christians is what I call pressure. Pressure. This is when you're, when, uh, when you're ridiculed, when your popularity is diminished, uh, when tolerance for your positions is lowered, you're pressured. Sometimes we think of peer pressure as being only something that teenagers are subject to. That's just simply not true. Pressure. The kind of pressure that comes upon us when we're ridiculed, or loss of popularity, or when tolerance is lowered, the pressure that builds for us to change behavior, to conform our ideas, to silence our voices, this kind of pressure is one level of opposition. Then there's a second. A second level of opposition is what I'll call harassment. Now, this is when people uh, begin to take financial and legal action against the church or against believers because of their positions. Now, I've certainly experienced this here at the seminary as people have taken financial action against us and people have taken legal action against us. 
Um, I'm dealing with a situation even now where someone has filed a legal complaint against the seminary because of some alleged behavior. Uh, That behavior, frankly, never happened, but nevertheless, we'll have to respond to this complaint. It's pressure, then it's harassment. Harassment takes it beyond the verbal or the written to a place where there's actual action taken, where you have to deal with people in a court, or you have to deal with people in financial situations, or you have to deal with things that are really beginning to impact your operations in a, on, in a significant way. And then the third level of opposition is persecution. Now, persecution is when the church or a Christian experiences physical threats or physical violence or damage to property or even torture. Now, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. I don't want to be misunderstood, but I do want to make my point. It frustrates me when I hear people in the American church complain about being persecuted. My friends, the American church is not being persecuted. Now, we are being pressured, and we are occasionally harassed, but we are not being persecuted. We are not losing our lives. We are not being publicly beaten. We are not being tortured. Yes, we might be experiencing some property crime, and I get that, but that's still not up to the definition of persecution. You know, when you talk to Christians from other places in the world who've actually been persecuted, you come to understand the high price they've paid the emotional toll it's taken on them and their families, the physical loss they've endured, and sometimes even death that's come. I remember the first Christian that I ever personally knew who had been tortured. This person ultimately was allowed to move to the United States as a religious asylum seeker. He was forbidden from ever traveling back to his country of origin. He was allowed in the United States, ultimately became a pastor here in the United States, and that's where I became friends with him. We got to know each other well enough that I was able to ask him about some of his personal experiences before he came to the United States, and he told me about being tortured, about being arrested on multiple occasions, and Uh, taken to secluded locations, being physically uh, roughed up, being beaten. But perhaps the most terrifying torture that he experienced was uh, his interrogators would take a revolver and spin the cylinder with shells in it and then put the gun to his forehead and pull the trigger. And every time it pulled the trigger, it would click, and he was never, of course, shot by this means. But he never knew if the bullet was really going to be for him. I remember him telling me that story, and I remember having an overwhelming sense of gratitude to God for this dear brother who was telling me his story, of the sacrifices he had made in pastoral ministry and the difference that he had made because of what he'd been able to accomplish in the country where he came from and also what he'd done here in the United States. But I also remember thinking as he told me his story that I would never again make the statement that I felt persecuted as a Christian. I had met someone and heard his story, and I could see 
by the anguish with which he was telling me these, uh, his story and narrating these events, I could see the pain. And I purposed that day, God, I may be pressured and I may be harassed, but please, please don't let me embarrass myself by claiming that I've been persecuted when I just simply have not ever had anything like that happen to me. So listen, the American church, we, we're so coddled. We've had it so good. We think that uh, a little vandalism on our properties or some mean things being said about us on social media or maybe even a lawsuit filed against us. We, we, we think these things are so bad. But just think how much worse it would be if you were captured in the night, pulled out of your bed, driven into a dark, secluded place and then beaten, had a gun put to your head, the trigger pulled. You think about what that was like for that brother, and you think about what that would be like today, and you have to finally admit that's real persecution. Well, here's what we've learned so far today. We're in a tough time right now in American life where the church is facing rising opposition, particularly over the issue of abortion. We recognize that the opposition we're facing is satanic and demonic, but it bleeds through, it expresses itself, it pops out, if you will, into our reality through cultural forces, political systems, and even community opposition within the Christian movement. When those things happen, we recognize pressure and harassment are a part of our reality, not yet persecution in the American church. But as I've said, I think we're headed perhaps for a very difficult time if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe v. Wade, a very difficult time of responding to what happens to us as a result. So let me give you now to close out the podcast three practical suggestions of how you can get ready to deal with whatever may be coming later this summer. First of all, I want you to develop realistic expectations of what might happen. Now, again, I'm not predicting these things will happen. I'm just saying we have to be realistic about the kinds of things that may take place. If a leaked brief of what might happen has produced the backlash we've seen over the last week or two, if that could produce a backlash, think how much more serious an actual Supreme Court decision may be. So if that happens, don't be shocked when churches are desecrated, priests and other leaders are physically attacked, worship services or conferences or conventions are interrupted, and judges or politicians are assaulted or have their homes in some way attacked. Don't be shocked. You know, I found in my life that if I have realistic expectations, it really lowers my threat threshold, and it also reduces the level of what makes me angry and of how I respond if I have simply realistic expectations about a situation. You know, the leak of this brief is a uh, is rooted in the by-all-means-necessary perspective that many people have about how to bring about change in our world today. So this kind of by-all-means-necessary strategy mean, may mean that almost anything can happen 
as a result of a final decision from the Supreme Court on this matter of abortion. If that's true, then we have to expect these kinds of bad things may be a part of our coming reality. Now, that doesn't mean we want them to happen. Doesn't mean we're predicting they will happen. Definitely doesn't mean they're mandated that they must happen. But it simply means that we have a realistic set of expectations, that we're not shocked when these bad things happen, and that we're emotionally prepared with a sobered reality, if you will, about what could happen And because of that, we're less prone to anger, resentment, emotional turmoil, and more likely able to make a strong, specific, concrete response. So first, develop realistic expectations about what may happen and then how we can respond to it. Second, determine to hold your ground. And I mean that in two ways. First of all, determine to hold your ground, meaning in the position that you have related to your stand about life. And then second, you may make a, need to make a decision to hold your ground, meaning the ground you're physically standing on. Let's talk about both these aspects of what I mean by determined to hold your ground. First of all, make up your mind about what you really believe about issues related to life, conception, beginning of life, and the value of life. Make up your mind. And then, no matter how much opposition comes, no matter what form that opposition takes, determine that you will not change your mind. You know, there are some things I've just decided. Uh, I've decided that God made men and women, and there are two genders. I've decided that God made marriage to be a, a man and a woman unified for life. And I, I've decided that conception or life begins at conception and must be guarded and protected from the very beginning. These are convictional statements that I can make. I've decided these things based on my best understanding of a solid uh, hermeneutic understanding of Scripture and a solid theological uh, grasp on what the Bible teaches. This is what I've come to grips with and what I've come to believe. I've determined to stand on those beliefs. Once you pre-decide what you believe, no matter what comes at you, you're just going to stand strong in those beliefs. And then the second thing I said was, you may have to stand your ground, meaning the actual ground you're standing on. What I mean by this is that churches have the right to assemble, to gather peaceably, and to protect worshipers on their property. Now, I am not advocating that you uh, take unilateral action in this regard, but I am strongly suggesting that you need to cooperate with your church leaders to help so that you understand the plan of protection for your church facility when you're meeting on a Sunday and how your church will respond to any disruptions or any, any difficulties that arise in the context of the free exercise of religion that you are uh, constitutionally assured you have the right to do. And so stand your ground means that it's appropriate to say this is a sacred worship space and a religious assembly gathered, and we have every right and privilege of doing that peaceably and to enforce that peace by whatever means necessary. Again, not advocating for unilateral action, but encouraging you strongly 
to work with your church leaders to participate in and to cooperate with whatever security measures they have in place where you worship. And then third, share the gospel more than argue policy with people you know. Over this over the summer, especially if a Supreme Court decision is realized or finalized that overturns Roe v. Wade, there's going to be a tremendous amount of arguing going on in our culture about these issues. Again, stand your ground, hold your position, nothing wrong with that. But recognize that arguing with people who don't agree with you may not be productive. Many pro-life advocates mistakenly think that sharing some salient facts or some pertinent facts will will change the mind of a pro-choice proponent. In other words, many pro-life people think, well, if I can just get the facts out there and get them to see the information, of course they'll change their mind. Well, no, they won't. It's just not likely to happen that way. And here's why. The Bible says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You can find that in 2 Corinthians 4.4. This means that people who are unbelievers, who are not yet converted, who've not been born again, they have an inborn, inbred limitation on their capacity to intake truth and order their lives accordingly. Now, that doesn't mean they can't intake truth or that there can't be some truth that they come to believe, but it just means that there's always a shroud hanging over their insight. There's always a cloud keeping them from seeing clearly. The Bible says it's because the God of this age has blinded their minds. That's why it's so important to share the gospel. Yes, you may argue some positions, and yes, you may make some policy statements. But what's really going to change the mind of the person you're talking with is the gospel. Because until gospel illumination occurs... A fundamental understanding of what is true is unlikely to happen. So today, today we've talked about what it means to get ready to face what may be a very challenging summer of opposition to those of us who stand for pro-life positions. The Supreme Court uh, brief that has been leaked perhaps is a precursor to what's coming later this summer. If the Supreme Court does overturn Roe versus Wade, we're going to face some challenging times. The opposition in our culture to our standards, which is satanic and demonic in origin, will emerge in cultural forces, political systems, and even in our own community as opposition rises. We may face pressure, harassment, and perhaps for the first time in a long time in the American church, some persecution for our position. How can you get ready to deal with this? Well, some simple steps. Develop realistic expectations of what is about to happen. Determine to hold your ground, meaning two things. First, you won't change your mind. And second, you will cooperate with those who are working to assure peaceable assembly for religious expression is always available in this country. And third, yes, It's always appropriate to talk policy and position, but share the gospel at every opportunity with the people you know, because until gospel illumination changes the mind of a person, they're not really going to be able to fully embrace the Christian worldview out of which this pro-life sentiment emerges. It's a tough time to talk about these issues right now in American history. We're dealing with profound challenges in our culture, in our country. 
It's a time for Christian leaders like you and me to stand up and do what's right, to represent the gospel at every opportunity, to demonstrate as best we can the character of Jesus Christ in our daily conduct, and to put into practice things like I've described today as we take the lead in churches and religious organizations to do the best we can to influence our culture as salt and light for good. I challenge you to take up the task today as you lead on.